Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at this passage together. Let's pray. Heavenly King, we pray that you would make us thoughtful and reflective, open-minded and open-hearted to what you have to teach us. And we pray that you would do this work in spite of our desire to think about other things, our desire to let our minds wander, our desire even perhaps to bristle at what your Bible teaches. Lord, we pray that you would give me strength and clarity as well, that you would work in my heart too. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to do two things tonight. The first is we're going to consider how the passage before us gives us qualifications for a particular office in the church. That is the office of a deacon. And then second, we're going to reflect on what these qualifications say about Christianity as a religion. So let's get, first of all, before we do anything, let's just get clear what it means to be a deacon. A deacon is a servant. That's just what the word means. And we see in verse 13 that uh, Paul is intending to talk about people who serve. Because in verse 13, he says that those who serve well as deacons. Now, deacons then must serve, and that's in contrast to overseers and the first, the opening seven verses of the passage, who are uh, able to teach. So how do deacons exercise their office? Through service. How do overseers exercise their office? Through teaching. This church's denomination, and you may not be part of this church or part of this denomination, but it's a curious tidbit anyway, uh, we have the Presbyterian Church in America, a thing called the Book of Church Order. And it's basically uh, a book that outlines biblically-minded procedures and rules for church governance. And here's how the Book of Church Order describes the office of a deacon. Here I'm reading. The office of deacon is not one of rule, but rather of service, both to the physical and spiritual needs of the people. Well, how does that work out in practice? Well, deacons help the needy. They visit the sick. They're friends to the friendless. They think about the congregation's property. Uh, the board of deacons of a particular church elects a treasurer who counts the money, who makes sure that people get their uh, tax statements at the end of the year. And in the passage before us, Paul gives Timothy a list of qualifications for those that do this work. 
And we can think about the qualifications under three headings. Serious, sincere, and steadfast. Deacons should be serious, sincere, and steadfast. Well, first, deacons should be serious, verse 8. Paul says they should be dignified. Um, that's how the Greek word is translated. And in a kind of democratic culture, I don't actually think we use the word dignified that often. So perhaps we should search for a more American term. Uh, a, more, a memorial inscription from the second century may help us here. Uh, it's, it's, you know, a, remembering someone who's died. And the memorial inscription says, You were so dignified while still a child that you seemed to have the intelligence of an old man. Well, what would, word would we use there instead of dignified? I think we'd use the word mature. You are so mature that even when you were a little guy, you seemed to have the intelligence and bearing of an older man. And deacons who are entrusted with the service of God's church should be mature for the task. That's one way they should be serious. They should also not be double-tongued. Now, this uh, expression, this word, can mean one of two things. Either you're double-tongued because your tongue, one tongue hears one thing and it speaks it to somebody else, so you're a gossip, or you're double-tongued because your tongue says one thing to one person but another thing to somebody else, so you're duplicitous. But it's good advice, isn't it, taken either way. Deacons can't be gossips, and they should be straight talkers. They should tell the truth. They can't be addicted to too much wine either. That's also in verse 8. That's another way they're serious. Now, it's not to say that they can be addicted to a little bit of wine or a lot addicted to something else. It's not the quantity of wine that is at issue. It's the man's heart. Is he self-controlled? Is he temperate? Next, he's not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, that's in contrast. We're going to see this later in 1 Timothy in chapter 6, verse 5. Paul teaches against those who think godliness is a means of gain. And in contrast to those people, deacons ought to take the 10th commandment, which we just read, very seriously. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or anything that is your neighbor's. Deacons ought to be not greedy for dishonest gain, but happy with what God has given them. So deacons should be serious about themselves. Self-controlled in their speech, not double-tongued. Self-controlled about pleasure, not addicted to much wine. And self-controlled self in their ambitions, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, a deacon should be serious about his family, too, if God has, in fact, given him one. Look at verse 12. Deacons should be the husband of one wife. Literally, deacons should be a one-woman man. And they should manage their children and household well. And a deacon's wife should be serious, too. Verse 11. She should be dignified. She should be mature, like her husband, and self-controlled, not a slanderer. And sober-minded. She should be faithful in all things. That is, in small affairs and in large efforts. Now, I'm very reluctant to talk about an issue surrounding verse 11. But I think I should. 
And I mean that sincerely. I'm very reluctant to do this, but I think it, it serves the church to, to talk about this. The Greek word for wife is woman. Now, perhaps it was actually the other way around, that an adult woman was always a wife or a widow. But the terms are used interchangeably. So you can translate their wives in verse 11, their wives likewise. You can translate that as wives, or you could translate it as women. Well, what's the difference? If you go with wives for your translation, then you have, well, the wives of male deacons. But if you translate the word as women, then you have women who are serving as deacons. That is, deaconesses. Now, those that favor the interpretation of deaconesses, women who are deacons, could point to Paul's omission of the word there, T-H-E-I-R, there. If Paul had wanted to say the deacon's wives, he could have said their wives. There's also the repetition of likewise. So if in verse 8, deacons likewise is a sign that we're getting a new discussion, description of a new office, then couldn't women likewise in verse 11 be a new category? <coughs> Excuse me. Third, uh, Paul calls Phoebe, a woman, a, a servant or a deacon in Romans 16.1. And this passage in 1 Timothy 3, then, could be taken as qualifications that Phoebe had. Furthermore, the women in 1 Timothy 3.11 share many of the same requirements as the men. So if Paul's articulating the requirements of an office, then it would make sense that he would give the requirements to both. <coughs> Sorry, I'm recovering from sickness. Finally, some point to the use of deaconesses in the church in the century as after the Apostle Paul. So perhaps these historical instances after the New Testament point back to legitimate New Testament practice. So those are arguments in favor of taking the passage to be deaconesses. Nevertheless, I think their wives is a better translation. <coughs> now, if I survive this, I'll, um, I think, did Dan go get me water? I'm, I'm hoping that, yeah, it would be nice if on a sermon on service, somebody jumped up to serve, right? So that was a test, and you as a congregant, you failed the test. You, no, I'm just kidding. So, uh. Now, I think that their wives is the better translation. I'll cover my reasons quickly. I'm happy to talk to you afterwards if you have questions. First, consider the flow of the text itself. It's awkward for Paul to talk about deacons in 8 to 10 and then jump to deaconesses in 11, only to jump back to deacons in verses 12 to 13. We know that he's talking about male deacons in verse 12 because he says specifically that he's talking about a deacon who's the husband of a man, a, a husband, that is a man, of one wife. Now, if we take the passage a different way, did you bring me coffee and water? <laughs> oh, oh, that's very good. I thought, you know, whatever makes him stop coughing is good. Thank you, brother. So, 
just think about the flow of the passage. So is Paul jumping around deacons, 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 deaconesses, deacons, deacons, deacons? Or is he instead saying deacons and then offering a discussion of what a deacon's wife should be like? And then in the next verses, discussing his children and his household affairs. If you take if you take the line in verse 11 to be referring to deacons wives, then it all fits under the category of what we would call his family affairs or more likely his private life. He should have his private life in order. It's no it's no use having a uh, a deacon who's an upstanding member of the community if his wife is a scandal, the, you know, the talk of the town. Second, just think about the word itself. Uh, after all, this same Greek word is used for wife in verse 12, and we know it's got to be wife because it's, it's the, the husband of one wife. Now, if it's, if it's wife in verse 12, then why is it not wife in verse 11 also? Third, there's no use of the word deaconesses in the New Testament. Not here, not anywhere else. If Paul had wanted to emphasize the creation of a particular office or the recognition of an office already in place, he could have put down the feminine form of deacon. That's what we do, deaconess. But Paul did not. He put wives or women instead. Finally, if verse 11 creates a new office, then it's odd that deaconesses have fewer requirements than deacons. If someone says that Paul didn't want to, the reason why the women have fewer requirements is that Paul didn't want to take the trouble to repeat himself, there's an obvious response. He's repeated himself already. After all, in this chapter, Paul is quite content to give a lengthy list for overseers than to repeat another lengthy list for deacons. If he's done that for overseers and deacons, it would make sense for him to be willing to do it for deaconesses too. So there are positive reasons, I think, for favoring a their wives interpretation of the passage. Now let's consider the reasons offered in favor of deaconesses. First, a lack of there is not promising. So it's it just in the text it says wives or women. But the fact that Paul doesn't give a possessive shouldn't trouble us too much. After all, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 16, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. But the text in the original language doesn't say that. It has, if some believing woman has widows. If she has widows? What could that mean? It means widows who are hers. Right? We add the possessive quite naturally. We supply what the text implies. And what's true in chapter 5 is also true in chapter 3. There is no there, T-T-I-R, there, but it's certainly implied. Whose women should these be, if not the deacons? Now, likewise isn't very helpful either. There's no hard and fast rule that likewise means I'm about to give you the list of requirements for an office. Likewise just means likewise. Then there's Phoebe. Now, there's an ironic problem here for those that want to say that women doesn't mean wives, but deaconesses. If Phoebe, in Romans 16, was in fact a deaconess, and Paul called her a servant, 
a deacon in Romans 16 to actually indicate an office, then why doesn't he do the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 3? Why does he talk about women? If he actually addresses Phoebe as a deacon in Romans 16, why not do the same thing here? Now, there's still the question for those that, like me, want to say that this is about wives, not about deaconesses. What do we do with Phoebe? Is, is Paul in Romans 16 recognizing Phoebe as a deaconess? I don't think so. If you read the next verse in Romans, Paul says exactly what Phoebe was. She was a servant of the church. Why? Because she was a patroness to many. She was a benefactress. And so calling her a deacon there, calling her a servant there, isn't saying that she has a particular office. It's indicating instead that Phoebe has done something for the church. She's, she's a servant of the church. Unconvinced? Well, Paul calls himself a servant, a deacon, repeatedly in the New Testament. I found so many references to Paul referring to himself as a servant, as a deacon, that I just stopped counting. But when Paul calls himself a deacon of Christ or a servant of Christ, is Paul saying that he holds the office of a deacon in a particular church as described in 1 Timothy chapter 3? Absolutely not. Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus. But insofar as he serves the church, he's a deacon too. But he's a deacon insofar as we all are. As we serve the church. So it's not his church office that he's talking about when he says, I'm a deacon of the church. Instead, he's talking about the preoccupation that he had of serving the church. As far as his office is concerned, Paul's not a deacon. He's an apostle. Now, let's be clear. Many women can do and should serve the church. Many women serve this church, and I am grateful for them. I've thought of thanking publicly the many women who serve this church, but I've, not, I've decided not to do that. Don't worry. But you know who you are, and we know who you are. Thank you. That's a good thing. Now, we've already, we have a couple more arguments, and then I promise we'll move on to the rest of the passage. We've already touched on how the requirements for deacons are different from or more onerous than their wives, making the idea that Paul isn't talk, thinking of a separate office of deaconess. But let me just end with a historical note. To, the, to those that appeal to history, let me say two things. First, it doesn't matter whether deaconesses arose in the church in the centuries after the New Testament. That doesn't show that it's in the Bible or that we're bound to believe it. Second, deaconesses in ancient times weren't what modern deaconesses aspire to be. There's evidence to suggest that deaconesses arose not because of high regard for women, but because the separation of men from women was culturally very important. There were post-New Testament deaconesses who kept men from entering the secluded women's section of the church, for example. Interestingly, this was a practice 
only the, in the East, where, which was much more concerned about cloistering women away from society. In the West, where men and women were actually more integrated, there weren't deaconesses. And regardless, even when there were deaconesses, they didn't serve the church at large. So it's a mistake to think that when we talk about ancient deaconesses, we're thinking about the ones, kind of the modern day equivalent of deaconesses today. I'll give you a specific example. One fourth century work says, a deaconess does not bless nor perform anything belonging to the office of presbyter, that is elder, or deacons, but only is to keep the doors and to minister to the presbyters, the elders, in the baptizing of women on account of decency. Now that hardly sounds like the kinds of deaconesses people are in favor of today. So that's a long way of saying, I think in verse 11, we should translate the passage, their wives. And Paul wants deacons, their wives, and their children to be serious. That's not to say that a deacon, his wife, and their children should dress in drab clothing, talk in monotone, and generally stare at the floor. On the contrary, Mr. Deacon is however God made him. If he's a quiet type, he'll be a quiet type. If he's loud, he'll be loud. But whether quiet or loud, he'll not be drunk at the end of the party, and he won't shout from the rooftops what, he, what, he's, what you've told him in secret. He's serious, though he can be a lot of fun too. So deacons are serious. Second, deacons are sincere. Look at verses 9 and 10. They must really and truly believe the gospel. And both what they believe and how they live should communicate that. That's how I think we should understand Paul's language in verse 9. When he talks about the mystery of the faith, he's not talking about some bizarre, forever hidden secret. He's talking about knowledge graciously revealed at just the right time. Think about it. If you're reading a mystery novel, then you know at the end you'll be told who done it. And once you know the mystery, you delight to see it revealed to others. That's how Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel in Romans 16. He says, The revelation of the mystery kept secret for long ages, but now made known to all nations. Well, what's made known to all nations? The gospel. Literally, the good news. And the good news is that God reconciled the world to himself in Jesus. And deacons must know the gospel. They must believe the right thing. So even the servants of the church must know and be tested on what they know. So three quick points just as an aside. Look how important the gospel is. Look how important the gospel is that even the people who do everyday practical work should know Jesus. Second, notice how Paul will not say that you can separate what a man believes from how he lives his life. Paul says, I can look at how you live your life and I know what you believe. What I know what you believe. 
And then finally, very quickly here, there are practical reasons for the examination of deacons. Let's take a positive and a negative. So a positive reason, in the task of serving and helping the church, deacons will be major influencers in the congregation. And the church needs to know that all its representatives faithfully communicate its message. We don't know how, when, or even why we influence people, but we do. I have a colleague at JBU who does work on spiritual formation and how people are influenced. And I went to a talk that he gave, and I'm a philosopher, so I thought, oh, it's practical, I'm not interested. But I, I thought I'd go and support my colleague. And it, this was years ago, and his talk has stayed with me. Because he said that we do all of these programs, we have all these formal activities, and if you ask people what's the most significant influence in your life, it's never the formal programs. It's always the ad hoc things. They, they talk to a kid named Johnny, or whatever, who is struggling, and, his, and he's, his life is turned around. His life is changed by the gospel. And they say, Johnny, why, what happened in your life? Who, who influenced you? And Johnny will say, well, Mr. Smith. And then they'll go, they actually go and interview people. Maybe this is why I would never do this, because I'm too lazy. But they would go to people and say, Mr. Smith, do you know, did you know that you, you were an incredible influence on Johnny? Really? Yes. He would say that you're the most spiritually important person in his life. Really? I thought we just repaired cars together on Saturday afternoons. I didn't know that I was influencing him at all. I had no idea. And so we have to be very careful as a church because we influence each other. And those that have a particular role of service really and truly will be the hands and feet of the church in difficult situations. And it's appropriate for us to test people and to say, do you really know the gospel? Are you really communicating to people in their time of need what the Lord has for them? So that's a positive reason. I think the negative reason is obvious. The threat of scandal. People rarely bring scandal on the church because they do, they do their jobs, but they're just not like they're not super competent at their jobs, but they're okay at their jobs. That doesn't bring scandal to the church. But people regularly bring scandal to the church through hypocrisy, through great moral failure. And so it's appropriate for the church to test its officers. Deacons are to be tested to protect themselves, to protect the church, and to protect the church's witness to the wider world. And of those that are tested, only the sincere should be made deacons. Deacons are to be serious. They're also to be sincere. Finally, look at verse 13. Deacons are to be steadfast. Deacons who serve well. That is, deacons who are in it for the long haul. Deacons who run the race set before them with perseverance. They gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith. Now, some have taken gain a good standing for themselves to indicate some kind of promise of future promotion. But Paul isn't saying become a deacon, a kind of junior varsity for overseers so that you can get promoted one day. Instead, Paul is saying, if you perform your task well, <coughs> which presumably includes not coughing when you're preaching. Excuse me. If you perform your task well, You'll get a good reputation for doing so. If you serve, serve the church well, 
you will grow in confidence in your faith. Those who are steadfast in the church, in the service of the church, they have an easy grace. They have a warm and happy life, even in the face of great difficulty. So being a deacon isn't just drudgery, though there is a fair amount of that. There's also the sweet satisfaction of serving the Lord Jesus. Now, it's, it's tempting when preaching on deacons and service to select some great man, a billionaire or an athlete, who did some great humble act of service. In northwest Arkansas, stories abound of Sam Walton. I know some of these stories myself, and they're heartwarming. But it gives us the wrong impression, doesn't it? It says that if you're rich and famous, then you can give something to those who, who aren't. And you'll get noticed by the rest of us. How does that help us in the Christian life? Jesus has a better example. A widow. We just read about her in Luke chapter 21. Remember? Jesus sees a, a woman giving a small, seemingly trivial amount of money. But Jesus thinks those two small coins are more valuable than what the rich have given. Why? Because they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty. And men who serve as deacons, when we get to the point in our church life when we actually have deacons, may be contributing not out of their abundance, but out of their poverty. In terms of sheer, raw talent, technical expertise, mental acuity, muscular strength, we may field some C and C-plus deacons. They come over to your house to help you move, but they can't lift the heavy boxes. It takes them twice as long to do the math as your accountant. But God looks at the diligent work of his servants and says in the words of Matthew 25, Well done, good and faithful servant. Steadfast deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So deacons should be serious, sincere, and steadfast. That's what candidates for the office of deacon should look like, and that's what deacons themselves should be. Now, in conclusion, very quickly, I want to say something about Christianity as a religion with these kinds of requirements. Now, I say it in that way, Christianity as a religion, to remind us of the context of this letter. Paul's writing to Timothy. We learn this in chapter 1, verse 1. And he's, he's addressing Timothy and saying, stay in Ephesus. He tells us that in, in verse 3 of chapter 1. And if you remember, Ephesus was a city renowned for its worship of the goddess Artemis. Her temple there was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Antipater of Sidon, who actually compiled the list, said that the Artemision, as Artemis' temple was called, was actually the very best of the seven. So it was the wonder of the seven wonders. If you remember, Acts chapter 19 records Christianity's reception in Ephesus. Let's set the stage. Paul sends Timothy, the Timothy of this letter, 
away from Ephesus. And when Timothy and his traveling companion Erastus leave, Paul in Ephesus faces what Luke in his understated way calls no little disturbance, no little disturbance. Well, what happened? The city rioted. There was panic on the streets of Ephesus. Why? It's because Demetrius, who made good money for himself and for the craftsmen by selling silver shrines of Artemis, told the craftsmen that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Well, the gods made with hands aren't gods. Oh, Artemis, trade union number 101. Then you're out of a job. You're out of a job. Well, people went crazy, screaming and chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And in contrast to the craftsmen who had concern for selfish gain, Christ's servants, Paul says, should give of their time and money. In contrast to a frenzied and out-of-control riot, Christ's servants have careful and thoughtful beliefs, and their lives reflect those beliefs. They're sober, they're serious, they're sincere. And in contrast to those who can get stirred up in a second, Christ's servants take the long view. They are steadfast in their devotion to the Savior. And you know why? It's because their Savior is reliable. Deacons have great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus because Jesus is worthy of their trust. And even if we're not deacons, Jesus is worthy of our trust too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have a high priest, the one who said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we pray that you would inflame our hearts with love for that Jesus and that you would change our wills so that we may gladly serve you with our whole lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.